1: Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. I'm joined today by Alex Dayton. Alex, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks, Arden. Pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I'm excited about the topic, success and addiction, which I know is one that is close to our hearts at O'Connor Professional Group. We've done a video about addiction and affluence, which sort of ties with this as well. Um, Just for our listeners and our viewers today, I'll give a little bit of background on Alex. Alex Dayton is a licensed mental health counselor. He is in private practice, but he's had a number of really impressive positions and consulting roles at Institutions like the Freedom Institute, which is an outpatient addiction treatment program, as well as, I want to get the title correct, Veritas, which is a virtual intensive outpatient program used for licensed professionals, judges, lawyers, uh, other types of licensed professionals. And I know you're a consultant with both of these great organizations now. Um, I guess. On that topic, let's just jump into sort of the needs of people who are licensed professionals. You know, do lawyers, doctors, judges, how do you think about their treatment? Uh, how is it similar and maybe how is it different from the average person who goes in to get addiction support?
0: Um, <clears throat> yeah, great question. I, I think one of the things I discovered early on in trying to design the program for Veritas. Uh, which is designed to treat medical professionals and lawyers and judges is that licensed professionals are really reluctant to get treatment that we wanted, we thought with a telehealth model, um, we lower the barrier to entry, create a confidential, compassionate, safe space. We are working with the physician health programs around the country. Each state has their own, their professional assistance programs as well. Um, or the lawyers assistance programs, but, we knew that of the, you know, if the incidence is 10 to 20% of of medical professionals who are struggling with substance use disorder, a small percentage of, of those are getting treatment. So there's this major gap that we thought we could potentially address. And it's really hard to get people to come into treatment voluntarily. That licensed professionals in particular, professionals in general, but licensed professionals have so much at stake with their license that they're so reluctant to seek treatment. Um, and go through these backdoor entry points um, that aren't through treatment centers of where they're getting the really the full comprehensive care. So I do think that the more we can create treatment centers that specifically cater to different professional groups, the more that they can see their peers getting help, not just in kind of a general population setting. Like when I was at Freedom Institute, we worked with a lot of professionals, a lot of doctors, a lot of lawyers, but it was very common that they would want to enter into treatment under some sort of alias, and mm-hmm. often people were reluctant to use their real information or document the real information or just thought they might we might be audited. so I think just really being able to address that specific need becomes a, a very important issue, and not everyone experiences it
1: uh, gosh, that makes me think of just so many questions so you know one that pops to mind is. When you think about people who participated participated in this outpatient program, were they nudged to participate? participate? Were they mandated to participate? Or sort of what would be that, was there an an event that sort of caused them to say, gosh, I really should seek help now?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the hope, the goal was that we were gonna get people to voluntarily come in. And that even, we, you know, I would meet with, hospitals around the country um, and trying to work with their, their, you know, support communities and programs within that system to encourage people proactively to seek treatment. But what we really find is that it's a more reactive system at this point from employers and employees, you know, and the professionals themselves, is that people are waiting until something happens. There's an inflection point, like some sort of a DUI or whatever it might be. And then people are coming into treatment. So when it, they come under that umbrella, a licensed professional, at least, then they're typically mandated for treatment. Um, another professional might have a consequence um, where they're not mandated, but like strongly encouraged. I work with a lot of lawyers um, and law firms will contact me directly to work in my private practice or, you know, enter into Veritas and um and there, it's not as much of a mandate, but kind of a uh, just a strong recommendation that sometimes people follow up on, and sometimes they don't. But but there's, there's there's this. I often don't even like to think of it as mandated because it implies they don't have a choice, and they really actually do. But they are very highly leveraged. They're really leveraged uh, clients when their license is at stake.
1: Makes total sense. I guess one question I have and and. In- you know i tend to ask more provocative questions so forgive me for that but when we think about doctors specifically you know i think of them as a harder population to treat because they have the medical knowledge because they are honestly paid to be sort of pillars of answers to everybody's questions and to project a certain level of confidence in their diagnoses you know how did you find that unfolded in a group setting where part of the experience is really to be vulnerable to be open to suggestion you know did you find that that could be achieved or did you find that particular patient population to be more difficult to treat
0: it's such an interesting question because when we were first conceptualizing veritas um and based on some experience that I have had in the past, we really did make that assumption that this could be the case, that there would be, it could be a challenging population in different ways just because there might be um, kind of challenging the expertise of the counselors, questioning their credentials. Um, often, you know, physicians at different levels are going to have, um, you know, more schooling and training than the counselors they're working with, obviously in a different field, but nonetheless, just that emphasis on education and, and the credentials as being uh, paramount. and But what I really found and what we found collectively is that uh, that just hasn't been the case for us. You know, now three years for Veritas and longer and for Freedom Institute and in my private practice as well. It just that it's been, it's a, a really motivated population actually. And that if you're providing them an alternative to treatment that they've been used to, that they, it's refreshing for them. And you know. so having a telehealth model where they can do an intensive outpatient program, um, working with a coach who is either probably themselves a lawyer, a nurse, or a physician, because all the coaches at Meritus are, have that background. Um, so they're really working with a peer, that it, it grounds them in a way that they become really motivated for treatment because the system that has existed um with the PHPs is been much more of a one size fits all for a lot of PHPs. It's not true for everyone. Now PHPs and there's some that are really wonderful that are compassionately working with individuals that try to meet the needs of individual to individuals and, and and kind of um customize the care to them. But historically it's been, you know, you fail a breathalyzer, we're going to residential for 30 days. Uh even if they've had documented a year of sobriety, they could fill a breathalyzer and potentially do that. So to have this other option, I think it's really set up for a motivated clientele that's been great to work with actually.
1: That's great to hear. Well I have another question on the on the legal side because when I think about lawyers there's obviously a spectrum. So we've seen in our practice people who come to us who are solo practitioners who are you know quite honestly some of them struggling financially but are looking for coaching options or or help figuring out the right match of a facility because they know things have gotten complicated. But we see that through partners at national law firms, leading practitioners. When I think about just institutionally how law works and the billable hour, I I think it's a system, honestly, that it's not surprising to see higher rates of anxiety, depression, and substance use, because there are ways that people can self-medicate when they're working 10, 12 hours a day consistently for not just a couple of years, but for a lifetime, potentially. I'm curious, What you've seen as effective when dealing with lawyers, because part of me wonders is sort of the just very nature of the legal profession built to have to create some of these dilemmas that they're struggling with or some of these issues that they're struggling with.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, totally spot on what you're saying, that there are these kind of built in aspects to the system that could be a real setup. Um, The just having a certain amount of billable hours and really high targets. I mean, they're not they're not. Small targets, typically, especially at these corporate law firms, and then uh, some law firms have that kind of open market system. So it's, you know, you're you're going out and you're getting on deals, and you get invited to deals, and uh, but if you're not creating relationships with partners, and if you're an associate not doing what is asked of you, then you worry that you're not going to get the deals to get the billable hours. So it's this kind of like eat what you kill mentality that can create a lot of stress for individuals as well that they feel like they can't have boundaries can't say no to things and especially in the pandemic once it all went remote it was just on overdrive and so i think one thing to your question that does work effectively with lawyers is to really validate that experience is to is to help them to be seen to be seen that this is not normal um, even to their, you know, some of their clients that they're working with that BlackRock, Blackstone, you know, KKR, whatever it might be, uh, wh- where people are working tremendous hours. I mean, you think of people in finance in different industries is working really hard, and they do, um, that the lawyers are the ones who are working overtime in the middle of the night creating these deals that this kind of really unique amount of work and just grind that they have to go through to get some of these things, these deals through um, that I think is important to help them be seen on. That's a good starting point at least for then h- encouraging them to start to um, create boundaries, you know?
1: Yeah, it, it's, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I also think I hadn't thought about the angle of them working on deals with financial institutions which often have less boundaries and the lawyers are also the ones called upon to often, you know, they're transacting things quickly. they you know, the, the time is of the essence in that profession more yeah. than most. Um, so it makes sense that having a group of them together, not only to commiserate, but to talk about, you know, even share practices of how you do set boundaries. Cause I think it's a, depending on where you are in the hierarchy of a firm, I think it's a really challenging proposition.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: So broadly, I mean, we've touched a little bit on this, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how the sort of areas of addiction, success and wealth touch each other. You know, How do you think about the interplay between those factors? Kind of wh- how do you see in your practice and with your experience at Veritas and, um, and the Freedom Institute, how did you see those kind of come together or not, or, or create problems for clients as they were walking in the, the door seeking help?
0: Yeah. Oh, no, that's a great question. I I mean, for one, I think that wealthy people, successful people, people, people with power and privilege are really much more easily able to avoid their problems than people in the general population. And that becomes a major pitfall, that there are systems in place that are created to help people avoid their problems. At an early age with families, I, I work with a lot of Young adults. I look used to work with a lot of adolescents, so we'd see it all the time that um, you know hiring lawyers, friends who are judges, um, just whoever it might be to pull the strings to get people out of the consequences of their actions, which really did them a disservice later because it enabled them to go further into whatever the problem might have been. But this happens on all levels and all ages, um, and it's something that we see. Um, even as people are contemplating entering into treatment, that there is an ability to avoid their problems, um, and then another way that successful people often avoid their problems is that they justify or rationalize problems in one area of their life because they're having success in another. So, a highly successful people who are, you know, slammed with work and and you know, crushing their careers are. Then feel validated that whatever they're doing, they're doing right. They're, they're getting all these really quantitative, quantifiable markers of their success. So why should I change anything? You know, you're ch- telling me to to alter this stuff, but I just had my best year last year. You know what if if I mess this recipe up, then I might lose some of the success and power, and I'm not willing to give that up. You know, they've intentionally not had boundaries, intentionally not engaged in self-care. It's this like, sleep when you're dead mentality that has gotten me to here so wait who are you to tell me to try to change this like i don't think so so it's it's um it can just be challenging to get people's buy-in again unless that big consequences happened you know you try to kind of maybe raise the bottom a little bit with some family members using some leverage or something but otherwise um, it's just it's there's a kind of a, even a sense of unmanageability to people's lives who could be Um, really successful professionals and so the idea of adding treatment ironically seems even more unmanageable i could never fit that in i could never take a month off i could never you know so it's kind of like uh you know snake eating its tail kind of thing
1: it's a great analogy and and specifically on this point i'd love to ask you about alcohol abuse because when i think of those professions particularly um I, i think of extreme use of alcohol not to say other substances aren't you know dependent upon if certainly there are others but when we at our practice see justification it's often around well, I was out to a dinner last night and one drink turned into one drink turned into 3 and if you're doing that 7 nights a week, you know, you're way above what we know are the nationally accepted norms. You know, that said, we are also seeing a group of millennials, younger professionals who are coming in and are sober curious and inventing all sorts of non-alcoholic beverages. So I'm curious, are you seeing Still a resistance, you know, when I look at what the national norms are, and as I understand it, the NIHH just came out and said it's actually not one, it used to be one drink for women a day and two drinks for men, and I think they're now saying one drink for anybody, which is seven drinks a week, you know, are you seeing uh, an awareness of just that slippery slope, particularly post COVID during a time when I think people were holed up and alcohol became a way to sort of ease the pain. Um, do you see it with younger people or are you seeing in general people still sort of saying, you know, it's it's just an extra beer or, you know it's just a, an extra drink and it helps me to relax kind of mentality.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think I've definitely, we've seen a shift. I've seen a shift, not just in terms of um, kind of conception of alcohol being a problem, but just their willingness to get help. The normalizing getting help, the reducing of stigma to getting help. That I think a lot of people are still unwilling to look at their drinking or see it as a problem. Like that's a common theme that definitely is still very prevalent. So all those kind of historical things that we've seen before in terms of denial is just being part of the symptomology. It's just built in really. Um, but that the stigma is reduced. So at least people are are feeling more free to talk about it. Men in particular, I think feeling more free to talk about it. There's a kind of um, more permission for men to seek help, I think. Um, And even, you know, what we're talking about, successful, wealthy individuals to seek help.
1: So switching gears a little bit, talk a little bit about what DBT is. As a as a lay person and non-clinician, one of the things that overwhelmed me in the field was what I call the alphabet soup of clinical credentials and, and various forms of clinical treatment. But talk to us, talk to me about what DBT is and if if for some, you know, where did you find it most effective? And for people who it's not effective with, you know, what are the other techniques people should consider?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so DBT essentially was created by Marsha Linehan and behavioral tech to be um, a modality treating individuals who are struggling with regulating their emotions and also with self-harming behavior and, and that was and the initial population that they were looking at was with borderline personality disorder and those are kind of two of the hallmarks of that regulation of emotions and, and self-harming behaviors but what I think they began to realize and extrapolate on was that that really looks like a lot of populations, certainly with addiction and substance use disorder, that um, that there's often a real difficulty in regulating emotions for people who are struggling with substance use disorder. And they could be engaging in a lot of self-harming behavior, including just the using of substances as self-harming, but then self-harming in terms of their behavior to relationships, to their job, to you know their life. Um, so the idea of then developing skills. It's a skills-based approach to learning. There's four modules, mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. And then within each of those modules are a group of skills that people can learn of how to be more mindful, how to tolerate stress, how to regulate their emotions, how to be more effective in asserting needs and setting boundaries. Um, So it's very tangible. It's very concrete. People can really grab onto it, which can be very helpful um and that and the main tenet of dbt is Marsha linehan wanted as my understanding at least to not just help people kind of get to a baseline in in solving their problems but really go beyond that so she thought if i can't provide people with their what she calls their life worth living that that what was the point so she she really wanted to go beyond and helping people to have the skills and the tools to live Uh, fulfilling, meaningful, satisfying lives. So part of what makes treatment effective or any modality effective is that it has to work for the client, but it also has to work for the counselor. And so I think this can be very effective for counselors because they can be trained in it. It feels valuable to them. They can apply it to their own life. I know I've certainly have. And then being able to disseminate it. In a way that you can see change happening and actually improving the lives of people not just eliminating some symptoms but actually helping people to live the life they want to live and even talk about that as a model um, makes it really effective
1: So I'm just listening to the various pillars of it, the distress tolerance, mindfulness. I mean, is there a DBT for children? It seems like something that should be offered to parents to train their own children in, because it seems like these are issues that we face across the board when raising children, raising kids. Have you seen it applied for younger folks?
0: Absolutely. I mean, there are so many different applications now, I'm sure that exists. I'm not 100% familiar with that, but. I, when I first learned about it, I had the exact same reaction as you. I thought, like, oh, my God, I'm going to make a cliff notes on this for all these different populations. This is amazing.
1: Alex, I couldn't agree more. I just think when you the, – even the modules you talk about and when we think about sort of things – related to children and things that I think parents but also other individuals in life struggle with you know there's a reason that mindfulness has become such a popular topic in mainstream publications because i think so many people given the uncertainty in the world and the challenges of the last couple of years so many people are seeking alternatives to just medications or self-medication through substances in as a way to try and you know figure out daily life stressors so I love I love your description of it and I can imagine as a, as a clinician how inspiring it is to see the actual progress and to have something that's practically based and tool based so that it can be explained easily to clients, many of whom if they've done traditional talk therapy may feel like there's just no end to this, that they could be in therapy yeah. for years and years and some that may be appropriate yeah. for and some may feel like having something more tangible would be helpful.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I that, think that's one thing that You know i felt as a therapist and even as someone who had gone to therapy i've just you know i would sit with my therapist who whom i really liked and i enjoyed seeing but sometimes i would think are you remembering what i'm saying you know are you connecting this is there a common thread to all of this it sometimes would feel like just a bunch of different great conversations that we were having but really having that through line was so important and that CBT makes sure to have that in towards your life worth living, and then even applying skills to it. So you have that anchoring point of, you know, talk about your life, but then what are you kind of what are you doing to take responsibility for it? How are you addressing some of these issues?
1: That's great. So I have two last questions uh, for you. The first is, what excites you about the development of the field? Are there things that you're looking forward to, or you think, "Gosh, this we may be addressing whether it's addictions or other types of mental health issues totally differently in years to come."
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that has excited me is just the um, incorporation of more technology into the field. You know, certainly with everyone going remote and just bring that element of technology and was really valuable. It's, I think behavioral healthcare is really lacking or, or sorry, lagging in their application of, of different forms of technology. Um, so that we've seen a real boom with that with different apps and, you know, just access to care and, uh, all of it really just being about giving more treatment, more tools to more people. So that's exciting. I get excited about, using it myself and with clients like i'll tell them about different things that i've seen which i no by no means an expert in but like hey you should check out this app this is really cool and just see what works for you you know i can follow my own approach and modality but it doesn't mean that at least from my belief is that people can't incorporate a host of different things to help themselves and so to give people agency is one of the biggest things you can do and w- technology people can really do that so that's one thing that excites me The other thing that I hope to see more of is more preventative care, especially as it works, working with professionals. As I said before, it's such a reactive system right now that they're waiting for people to get in trouble, waiting for something to happen, that, um, you know, if you could start to um, really just, I don't know, anticipate burnout before it's happening, give people, um, you know, more resources and, and make self-care more important as a way of avoiding burnout, uh, avoiding medical leaves, increasing performance, avoiding poor performance. You know, I think at, at the end of the day, it really does help the bottom line, which is where you're going to get people's attention. But that I would love to see more of that. And I feel like that's happening more and more
1: i completely agree with that statement and i think if there i like to look at silver linings if there was one silver lining with covid i think people in the employer space particularly are paying more attention to turnover and mental wellness and i i can't basically can't afford to ignore it because the employee um the ability to recruit right now is harder than it's been in a long time and so people are forced to say what how do we keep people here if we get good people my last and final question for you is, you know, when you think back on your, whether it's your personal or your professional journey, is there anything that sticks out to you that you say, gosh, I would change this about my journey or, or alternatively, I am so glad this happened and I would definitely want to keep this as part of my history. This was a defining moment.
0: Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, there's certainly things I could look back on and think, and I've thought to myself at times, oh, I wish I'd done that differently, or I wish I could do this again, or I've, I've experienced regrets in my life, I've done things that I've regretted. Um, but I do have to say at the end of the day that I'm I'm really happy with my, my life, if I think both personally and professionally. I feel really blessed to have a wonderful family, kids that I love, a wonderful relationship with my wife. Um, a career that feels really meaningful and important to me that connects me to people like you and a really professional group that i find stimulating and interesting and um so the idea of changing something or rewriting something means that it could potentially be different it's like it's like in the movie back to the future when they do one thing differently and then you know biff is still alive and married to his mom (laughs) i just wouldn't want to have someone else married to my wife. I mean that would be <laughs>
1: that would be awful
0: if I rewrote something and then and then someone else was in my place. So, so I guess my answer is I wouldn't change anything.
1: I love it. I love it. It's a great note to end on um, and thank you so much, Alex, for your time and your and your wisdom. I just think it was really impressive. And I think you're touching on a really important topic that I want to make sure gets the attention it deserves because I think the population you've had a history of treating are some of the toughest, you know, doctors, lawyers, and adolescents. I think for many clinicians, they would say, if I could pick three populations I'd like to stay away from due to the resistance to getting help, It's it would be those. So you've given us some hope and I appreciate your participation today.
0: Thanks, Arden. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you to all of our listeners and our viewers. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please go on your platform of choice and give us a positive review. And we look forward to having you on our next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit BeyondTheBalanceSheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.